Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. Roslindale was rich with holiday spirit on Saturday, with hundreds of residents gathering round for the annual tree lighting in Adams Park. <laughs> Last Saturday, the dancers from the wonderful Urban Nutcracker Ballet graced the stage of the annual Roslindale Christmas tree lighting in Roslindale Square. In view of what's going on in the world right now, or anytime really, it's very important for us to spend time together. Um, we're very grateful to have, you know, the chance to spend time, you know, with a beautiful Christmas tree, with beautiful people, with the kids running around, spending time together, you know, at the end of the year. So it's a great time for us, for all of us. City leaders joined Roslindale residents for the annual tree lighting as community members of all ages came out to spread Christmas cheer for all to hear. I am so happy to see you all here, right, right here at home, and to start the season off right. In this season of giving thanks, I'm just incredibly grateful to be in a city, a community, a neighborhood of folks who take care of each other. And even as we're seeing so much out there in the world, Boston is always working to try to make new examples of how we can come together and, and do big things. So um, this is a, a true honor and always very special for me to be here with the family. You know, it's so important for the community to come together for tree lighting. It's like the one we're here today in Rosnell Square. So we can celebrate community, we can celebrate the holidays together, and we can meet each other and understand that we cannot do anything alone. We have to come together in this time. The event brought neighbors together to enjoy musical performances, visit Santa Claus, and watch as the tree illuminated the start of the holiday season. My general hope for 2024 is that we can come together as Americans and appreciate what we have, which we, we have a wonderful country here. And I hate to see so many people unhappy these days, but today I see a lot of people enjoying each other and it feels wonderful to me. This is just one of the many events that happens in Roslindale where we come together with our community. I see all my friends. I see all my neighbors. I don't even need to make plans to meet with anybody because I know I'm going to come with my one friend who I come every year and we're going to see everyone else we know. And it really just helps kick off the, the holiday and remind us of how many people in our community are here together. You can be in your house all by yourself, but you come out here and then you're reminded of everyone that's together in the community that's here for one another. The Boston Works Department is winding up for major improvements to flood management in the Muddy River and nearby Boston neighborhoods. Muddy. The ribbon is cut and phase two of the Muddy River restoration project is underway. Today marks a significant milestone in our collective efforts of ensuring the safety and resilience of the city and town. This project stands as a testament to our unity and shared commitment to safeguarding against the devastating impacts of flooding and underscores the benefits of improved access, value of careful historic preservation, ecological restoration, and the incredible economic and social returns gained from investing in our public parks. All hands are on deck from the city of Boston and town of Brookline with help from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and Mass Department of Conservation and Restoration. The goal? 
to improve climate resiliency of the Muddy River and its parks. The dredging that we've done here, we've removed over 90,000 cubic yards of material out of the Muddy River. In addition to the dredging, will also help the local uh, environment and the ecology of the Ripian, uh, the, the Ripian area, as well as the aquatic environment for the animals and the uh, native species in here. Also, by removing the invasive weeds, we allow for the native uh, plants to be able to come back into the area. It beautifies our parks. It helps with the flood risk management, and everyone in the city of Boston will certainly enjoy the, the way the parks look. The 3.5-mile waterway of brooks and ponds running through Boston's Emerald Necklace has offered peace and calm for residents. Phase two of the restoration project started in 2020 and will continue through the year with much-needed maintenance and landscaping. In phase two, it's huge because it's adding on to that whole complete uh, ecosystem of a healthy river. Uh, between the pond and the Charles and it was broken and uh, compromised and now the I love the idea that the fish and the birds and human beings uh, can all appreciate it and be healthier together. The Muddy River has flooded surrounding neighborhoods three times since 1996. With the involvement of all partners, future damage to the area can be prevented. As you know, the Muddy River reached its limit to serve effective flood protection for the neighborhoods it runs through. So much that in 1996, flooding forced the MBTA to shut down the Green Line for a week. It caused nearly $70 million of damage to the Fenway neighborhood. Since that, since that event, these groups here today have partnered with advocacy groups to plan, design, and construct a solution to the river's flooding. The state has invested over $25 million to improve water quality, enhance aquatic habitat, restore historical landscapes, and provide flood control for future generations. As part of Boston's Emerald Necklace, Muddy River is a connective tissue of our neighborhoods. And with a little love and action, it can be a gift for all. So instead of threatening neighbor, nearby communities with floodwaters, this river is helping to knit communities together. These communities are just about as diverse as, as you know, we love to celebrate in Boston, students who are getting to class, community members who are taking a walk after visiting our museums as they're you know, coming from all over the world, or residents from every walk of life who are just taking a breath and enjoying uh, the, the beauty of having this, this scenery here in the midst of our urban environment. For low-income families in Boston, there may be relief through a guaranteed basic income program. Earlier this week, the Wu administration met to explore the proposal by studying other cities like Cambridge that have tested similar programs. City leaders and local experts weigh in on the benefits and risks. On Monday, Boston City Councilors gathered at City Hall to discuss the need for guaranteed basic income and a new program that would provide cash payments to Boston citizens living below the poverty line. 
Guaranteed basic income as a project, uh, government funded or privately funded all across the country, has really shown really promising results, particularly for families with children who are living below the poverty line. We have seen changes in educational outcomes, in health outcomes, and even in educational attainment for parents who have been the recipients of these guaranteed basic income funds. And so when you're talking about people and families who are living below the poverty line, they're making decisions between paying for food and paying for rent and paying for child care and so on and so forth. And those are really decisions that impact people's everyday lives and their ability to really reach their full potential. The proposed guaranteed income program is still in dispute, with some on the council arguing that the city is not yet economically equipped for it. It's important that we ensure that everybody is benefiting in being supported. However, providing a guaranteed income will be challenging during these economic difficult times. And it's about working together, providing as much assistance as we can to families in need. But I just don't think the city is able to afford providing each resident with a guaranteed income at this time. While the proposed solution is not supported by all, one thing everyone can agree on is the damaging long-term impact poverty has on Boston families and residents. For me, this particular conversation on guaranteed income, but really generally speaking about how the city approaches poverty, is not just a today issue. This is a, for the future of the city, 10 years, 20 years, by 2050, we need to address this issue urgently because what we don't want to see happen is we go from a population of roughly 670,000 to 800,000 and all we do is further increase the number of people living in poverty. I want us to really think about what the cost of not doing this is. We can say it's going to cost too much money to bring people out of poverty. Well, what is it going to cost us? How are the people in our city the almost 30% of children who are living below the poverty line, the almost 20% of people in the city who are living below the poverty line, how are they going to have their best chance to thrive in the city if we are not investing in them? And if that many people in our city who are majority women, majority black and brown people, if they do not have equitable access to economic mobility, the stability of guaranteed basic income would change the lives of every Bostonian struggling in this economy. But the ability for the city to move forward with a program like this will have great costs. In the spirit of the season of giving, a foundation that raises money for families in need held a holiday-inspired golf tournament. BNN's Grace Choi found out why the organizers of the event are trying to top last year's donations. The Santa Scramble Golf Tournament held by the Fury Family Foundation is back for its 10th year with over 100 attendees ready to play. Co-founder Margaret Rogers says she planned the Christmas-themed tournament despite challenges. <laughs> Knowing that it's very difficult to um, get a golf tournament during the nice summer season, uh, when we were chatting about it, it was September, and I said, you know what, let's get a Saturday tournament, let's make it really fun, let's make it Santa-themed. The Fiore Family Foundation says all proceeds from this year's tournament go to the Levin Reisman Giving Tree, a group that raises money for low-income families impacted by cancer. Co-founder Matt Rogers says he dedicated this year's event to his uncle Larry Fiore, who was diagnosed with cancer. It's his wishes that we partner with my cousin uh, through the Fiore Family Foundation and raise some money to uh, give kids a uh, happy holiday season. 
Matt and Margaret say the money raised will help families fulfill their Christmas wish lists. Attendee Jeff Dante says he appreciates the cause. We, we think it's, it's, it's great. This is a family and uh, the, the cause is amazing, especially when it hits so close to home. 11 Reisman Giving Tree representative Marissa Garo says that last year they were able to raise over $15,000 to purchase gifts for 26 children. The group hopes to fulfill wish lists for 23 children this year. How often can you get 140 friends and colleagues out to have a great day? Not take yourself too seriously, but um, do some good while you're doing it. This Matt says the tournament chooses a new charity to raise money for each year. Last year, the tournament raised a total of $7,500 and hopes to raise $10,000 this year. Reporting for Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Grace Troy for BNN. December 3rd is the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. BNN correspondent Lainey Broussard visited one sports program for children that strives for kids to stay active and have fun. Shooting hoops and wheeling down the court. That's a typical day for these kids at Franciscan Children's Adaptive Sports Program. I knew right away that with being in a wheelchair there were going to be challenges. When I found the adaptive sports, I fell in love and really haven't left since then. The New Balance Foundation Adaptive Sports Program at Franciscan Children's Hospital provides seasonal sports programs promoting physical fitness and overall health. I can't describe what it's like. You have to experience it for yourself. The National Library of Medicine reports that nearly 43 million Americans who have a disability are at high risk for physical inactivity. That's why families say these programs are so important. We found out he had a form of cerebral palsy. Because of that, he cannot walk or stand on his own. He needs a wheelchair to um, function and get around. That's when Josh started to look for more options. We try to tell him, Joe, you know, but there's a lot of things that you can do that kids can't do. It's a different warm-up routine, strapping into their chairs and pushing off to play on the court. Instead of running, we're, we're using our arms to push up and down the court. So a lot of people who play wheelchair basketball, like you saw, have a really strong upper body. Okay, so I am out here on the court that got me in a chair, and let me tell you, it's definitely a workout. My arms are already burning, but the best part, the kids tell me, is that they're all part of a team and doing it together. Ready? Let's do it. All right, let's see. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I'm with the exact kind of my people. Like, it doesn't get any more better than that. Eric was born um, with multiple of medical conditions. He was also born with several deformities in his legs where he, um, he needed multiple surgeries in order to correct them. His disability is a part of him, but not him. And families say these practices not only give their kids a chance to exercise, but also to just be a kid. I think any other wheelchair people that might be watching this, I, I would try any wheelchair sport you can. As you can see, I'm clearly not laced up and ready to go on the court myself today, but the good news is that these kids will have practices every single Sunday up until April so they can have their shot on the court. Reporting from Boston for BNN, I'm Lenny Broussard. As we enter the winter season, the city of Boston implores residents to button up and prepare for snow and freezing temperatures. Here are some tips for having a safe winter in Boston. First, Caring for our vulnerable populations is of the utmost importance. If you see homeless and vulnerable individuals out in the cold who appear immobile, disoriented, or underdressed for the cold, 
please call 911. The Boston Public Health Commission utilizes a citywide network of emergency shelters, outreach providers, city agencies, and first responders to assist those in need of shelter. Boston's emergency shelters are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when temperatures are below freezing, that's 32 degrees, amnesty is in place for those with nonviolent restrictions. When it comes to clearing snow, property owners must fully clear snow, sleet, and ice from sidewalks and curb ramps abutting the property within three hours after the snowfall ends or three hours after sunrise if the snow ends overnight. Curb and pedestrian ramps to the street should be cleared fully and continually over the duration of the storm to ensure accessibility for individuals with disabilities. If a storm will last over an extended period of time, property owners are asked to continually check ramps abutting their property for compliance. If you're able, keep catch basins and higher and um, excuse me, fire hydrants clear of snow and debris. This will help prevent flooding and allow access in the event of an emergency. Carbon monoxide poisoning is another concern during winter weather, especially with the use of generators. Residents should use their home heating systems wisely and safely and have working carbon monoxide detectors on each floor of the home. Call 911 immediately if you suspect carbon monoxide poisoning. If you need more information on heating resources, tips for driving in inclement weather, and how to prepare for a power outage, please go to boston.gov forward slash winter dash Boston. The concept of falling in love with someone who's incarcerated may seem far-fetched to the average person, but thousands of couples have found love that transcends the justice system. Ivy Scott is a criminal justice reporter at the Boston Globe, focused on Massachusetts state courts, district attorneys, and the state attorney general's office. A graduate of Brown University, Ivy previously freelanced for the Providence Journal and spent a year in Paris covering women's rights for both radio and television outlets. She's also the creator of the three-part miniseries, We Found Love, currently running in the Globe's Love Letters podcast feed. We Found Love explores the intricacies of prison relationships and how couples share intimacy through the bars. We discuss the details of the podcast and what she's learned from the experience. Enjoy the interview. We Found Love is a new three-part miniseries that's part of the Love Letters podcast following three very unique couples. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how the idea for We Found Love came about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started communicating um, with inmates at various state prisons in Massachusetts uh, probably about two years ago now, um, maybe a little bit less. And um, in that process. Um, one of the very first inmates that I spoke to, um, I learned that he and his girlfriend had met um, through a prison pen pal program. It was sort of like a, a program that matched uh, advocates or people looking to do outreach um, with inmates. And that was just so mind blowing to me. I mean, it, it gave me a million questions to think about. I was wondering, like, what does dating look like for you guys? Like, how did this very informal, casual back and forth turn into a romantic relationship. Um, and unfortunately, like that couple broke up not long after we first met. And so 
for several months, my questions went unanswered and they sort of, you know, they sat in the back of my head. Um, and then a few months later, I was at uh, another outreach and education event um, at one of the uh, state facilities. And I met a woman who does some, um, she works there like doing advocacy and doing outreach. And she shared just a piece of her story, but she mentioned how she met her partner and immediately all of those questions sort of came flooding back. And so I approached her right away um, and you know asked her if I could hear more of her story and how they met and how they fell in love. Um, and that first couple really was like the inception for the project. Hmm. Well, it's a very powerful podcast. Um, how, how common is it for people to form relationships while one person is incarcerated? So it's actually more common than you would think. Um, and there's a lot of ways that uh, people on the outside, so to speak, can meet incarcerated men and women. Um, there are these pen pal programs that I talked about, but there are also many uh, activists and educators that go inside of prisons um, to meet with inmates and they can meet that way. Um, Facebook and social media, uh, mutual friends also offer a wide variety um, of ways that these relationships can develop. But what I will say is that while I think it is more common than many of us expect for these relationships to start. I think that uh, it is the long lasting nature of some of the relationships in, these series, in this series that is, is pretty unique. Hmm. And what are some of the most common misconceptions uh, that people have about these types of relationships? Um, I think that they people often tend to stereotype uh, specifically the women in them um, almost as being delusional um, and the men as being manipulative. Um, and sometimes it can go the other way. But I think that there's like I think there's a there's an old Netflix show. I don't think it's on Netflix anymore um, that this sort of like a reality TV series that documents some of these couples. And, you know, every now and then in a tabloid, you'll see a story of like a woman that has like fallen in love with a serial killer. Um, and I think that that tends to be the image that a lot of people have of what these relationships are like, um, when in reality, it is all different kinds of women that end up in these relationships. I mean, I've heard stories um, that don't even appear here about um, you know, army veterans who have ended up in these situations, like politicians, um, writers, like all different kinds of people. Um, and even the women who do appear in this series, like they are, you know, busy women, families, jobs, hobbies, um, they they do a lot. And it's not as if they're just sort of these these women who are, um, you know, sitting at home, like lonely um, and like the victims um, of right. somebody's like of being or they're not being preyed upon, I guess is what I should say. Hmm. And what did you find most surprising in your process of researching and interviewing the couples of We Found Love? I think two things. The first is um, how much work uh, each partner puts in um, to make their relationship last. I think that um, I continued to be surprised by the sheer number of hurdles. Of course, I had known that there were going to be some, but just even seeing how um, phone calls can be cut short, um, seeing how, you know, letters and emails back and forth are always monitored. Um, there are so many barriers to a, like a quote unquote viable relationship and so many things that I think would really turn people away or make them think that this isn't possible. And yet you have these couples that are really, really willing to put in the work and to be patient with one another um, to make this happen. And then I think the other thing is that 
Um, you know, these men are, the three men who appear in the podcast are all, um, or were all incarcerated for very serious crimes. And I think that I definitely had assumptions about what those people were going to be like. Um, I think that, you know, I had already been doing some work in the criminal justice space before then. But I think even so, you get into this mindset where, you know, you wonder, like, should I be afraid of these guys? Like, are they going to be aggressive? Are they going to be, um, you know, like unpleasant to be around? And I think that I also really marveled at how much self-reflection um, had taken place um, for all of these men during the time that they were incarcerated, but also how circumstantially um, like the name of their charge did not really f- reflect the full scope of the situation and like the life circumstances that led them to make the choices that they did. Right. And you, you spoke about uh, the fact that um, these men have been incarcerated for very serious crimes, uh, ranging from first degree murder to second degree murder. How did you go about balancing uh, telling their stories with the, the story of what brought them into uh, jail in the first place? Yeah, I think that for me, the goal was not it was yeah, it was not to gloss over what had happened and to be very upfront and very clear um, as early as possible about the severity of the offense. And I think that it's actually one of the women who really said it best. There's a, a woman who appears in the third episode, talks about how it's not that the her partner shouldn't have to face the consequences of his actions. She's like, no, he should have to face the consequences of his actions. But that does not mean that he is fundamentally unlovable um, and that he is like a monster at his core. Um, and so I think that that was the balance that I tried to strike with being really clear that like this event is horrible. This is a tragedy. This is incredibly heartbreaking um, for the family of the victims and for the community that these victims were a part of. Um, and at the same time, like the there the somebody the person who did this is a person. Like they are a human being, and like therefore. Um, they also experience like human emotions. And that was really what I wanted to get at was I feel like what is not often reported on are what are the human emotions that the people who you know are the perpetrators of these um, acts, like what what is going on inside of their heads, what is going on inside of their hearts, like what is is possible for them? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I definitely felt the the transformative nature of um, of the piece. And uh, there is a proposed law in Massachusetts that would eliminate life sentences without parole. How would this be a game changer for the couples in the podcast series? Yeah, I think that it most directly impacts uh, the second and third couple. The first couple, um, the husband has been out on parole for um, several, I mean, decades now. Yeah, I think decades now. Um, And... But for the the other two um, men who are still incarcerated, um, they had been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Um, And so this bill um, basically would eliminate that idea that like nobody is eligible for the opportunity to get parole. And I think I want to be clear that like what it doesn't do is guarantee that everybody gets out. And so like for both of these men, there would definitely still be hurdles um, if there was if they were to pursue freedom. Um, But what it does is it creates the opportunity. It creates like one potential pathway for them to go and plead their case before a parole board and show 
um, how they've changed and like why they deserve to return to their communities and attempt to make a positive impact. Mm. And what do you hope that listeners take away from love letters and where can they hear it for themselves? Yeah. Um, so I think for me, uh, I think I hope that readers take away what was sort of the, the genesis and the core of why I did this project in the first place, which is um, just how hard people work to keep love alive um, in environments that are very hostile to love. Um, I think that it was for me, I think it has become a project that has done a lot to like sort of humanize the situation. But the reason that I set out to do it wasn't even for that purpose. It was like purely curiosity driven. Like I just had so many questions about how this is possible. How do people make this work and why would they want to do that? And so I hope that those questions are answered for the listeners um, as they sort of go on the journey along with me. Um, and the podcast for people interested in listening, um, it's available on Spotify, it's available on Apple Podcasts, it's available on uh, the Love Letters website, um, and pretty much wherever people get their podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 7.30 and 9 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 9 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon, and I'll see you next Friday.